Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Real Estate Red Zone, brought to you by the Real Estate Center at Texas A&M University. I'm Haley Reeder, Communications Specialist. Today is Wednesday, September 25th, 2019. On this day in 1789, the first Federal Congress of the United States proposed to the state legislature 12 amendments to the Constitution. The first two, concerning the number of constituents for each representative and the compensation of congressmen, were not ratified. Articles 3 through 12, known as the Bill of Rights, became the first 10 amendments to the U.S. Constitution and contained guarantees of essential rights and liberties omitted in the crafting of the original document. On May 7, 1992, the original Second Amendment was ratified as the 27th. Imagine you're on vacation in the beautiful Texas Hill Country. You and your family decide to go on a horseback riding tour to see the winding rivers and rolling hills. Before you saddle up, the landowner hands you a liability waiver. You think to yourself, well, these kinds of documents don't carry much legal weight, and I'm probably not going to get hurt, so I'll just sign it. But what happens if that horse bucks you off? Or one of your children slips on some mud while mounting. If that liability waiver were drafted properly, then it may protect the landowner from legal consequences surrounding the injury. And what if you're the landowner in this situation? You'd want to make sure your liability waiver can actually protect you from legal consequences if another party is injured on your property. Real Estate Center research attorney Rusty Adams tackled this complicated issue in his latest article, Are liability waivers enforceable? He joins us today to talk more about liability waivers in Texas. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Haley. So what exactly is a liability waiver and what are its common real estate applications? Well, in this context I'm talking about in this article, I'm talking about pre-injury releases where you are releasing a party from liability for their own negligence before someone gets hurt. And uh, where you typically are going to see that in a real estate context is where you're entering onto someone else's property, particularly to participate in some activity. So if you're going to hunt, camp uh, on someone's land, those type of things. Uh, If you're going to a trampoline park, for Mm -hmm. example, you might be asked to sign uh, a liability release prior to being allowed to participate in that activity. So what makes a liability waiver enforceable? Well, first, one reason I wrote this is because a lot of people are of the opinion that you're just signing a piece of paper and it's not really going to affect your rights at all and you might Mm -hmm. as well go ahead and sign it. And that's not necessarily true. So what courts will look at to determine whether Uh, waivers are enforceable or not is generally falls under the doctrine of fair notice and there's two parts to fair notice. Mm -hmm. The first is what's called the express negligence rule or the express negligence doctrine. Basically what that says is in order to have a party released from liability for their own negligence the document a (laughs) pre-injury waiver Mm -hmm. has to be clear that it's talking about negligence. It has to, you know, what are what are you releasing claims for, and also who are you releasing claims for, and that party A is releasing party B 
from any claim that party A might have against party B for party B's negligence. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of parties in there, but right. uh, that's that's the gist of the express negligence rule. The second part of it is, what, is it conspicuous? It, the idea being if you are releasing someone from liability for their own negligence before you even know what the injury is, that is an extreme shifting of risk. And we're not going to let that happen unless that party knows for sure that that's what they're doing. Mm -hmm. So you can't bury the release in a bunch of other language. You can't bury it in small print. It has to be something that's easy to see. In other words, the way the law says it is a waiver is conspicuous if a reasonable person against whom it is to operate ought to have noticed it. Or that something must appear to attract the attention of a reasonable person when he looks at it. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? Okay. Yeah. Um, the best way to tell you is some examples, which are actually, there's some in the article. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a case where uh, there was an entry form for a motorcycle race. It was signed, of course, before the injury. came up in court after the injury because the uh, motorcycle rider was injured. The front of the form was the entry form, and it had plenty of room for the person to put in their name, address, all that information. The release and waiver were teeny tiny and couldn't even be read. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that was held to be inconspicuous, and the waiver was invalid. In another case, the release provisions were on the back of a work order, and it was teeny tiny print. There were no headings, no contrasting typefaces. What's generally going to be held to be conspicuous is if you have bold headings, large type, capital letters, contrasting colors, uh, things that make it clear and easy to see, here's this provision and here's what it does and you are waiving important rights. Mm -hmm. So that's the, the gist of it. If all those requirements are met, it's very likely that a waiver will be upheld in court. One thing that you should realize, though, is that even if the even if the language is scattered into a larger contract and it's scattered throughout the contract, it can still be considered conspicuous. Mm-hmm. So if you have uh, bits and pieces of these indemnification provisions throughout the contract, but they're included in paragraphs with headings that say indemnification provision or responsibility for loss or damage, release of liability, those types of things. That should still be sufficient, even though it's not all in one place. Now, in your article, you mentioned gross negligence. What really is that? Gross negligence is kind of a different animal, which mm-hmm. is why I mentioned that in the article. Uh, first, let me throw this out there. Post-injury releases of gross negligence are enforceable. Those are situations where someone's already been hurt. You may already be involved in litigation, uh, and uh, there's a release as part of a settlement or something like that. Those are enforceable. What we're talking about is pre-injury waivers of gross negligence. Some courts say that these are unenforceable because it's against public policy to allow people to waive those. Mm -hmm. The Texas Supreme Court has not decided that. Um, One interesting 
factor in those cases is that none of the releases in those cases actually use the term gross negligence. Mm -hmm. So there are cases that deal with whether gross negligence can be waived and whether it is included in the term negligence. But the term gross negligence is not in those releases. Now, why is that important? The difficulty in gross negligence, a lot of it is in the name. Mm -hmm. And courts have held that gross negligence is not simply an aggravated form of negligence. Gross negligence is particularly egregious conduct. And the reason it's particularly egregious almost has sort of an element of intent in there. Not necessarily that someone intended to cause this harm Mm -hmm. or that they intended to be negligent either, but that their conduct was so extreme or involved an extreme risk of serious injury and they did it anyway. Right. And that maybe they knew, maybe they didn't know, but they should have known. And the example I like to use is, uh, say it's a bunch of high school or college kids and they're they're riding around out on the back roads and their driver's going way too fast. And, you know, for this example, there's no substances involved. They're just going way too fast, being crazy, taking all the curves on two wheels. And everybody in the vehicle is screaming at them to slow down and grabbing onto those little handles by the windows and saying, stop. Mm -hmm. Well, does the driver intend to hurt somebody? No. Do they think they're going to hurt somebody? Mm -hmm. No. But they darn well should know that what they're doing involves an extreme risk of serious injury to the people in the vehicle and to other people on other vehicles. And so... That's something that might be considered gross negligence. The courts have said gross negligence is not a separate cause of action, but it's also not just an aggravated form of negligence. So when you put a waiver out there that releases a party from liability for their own negligence, does that include gross negligence or not? There are cases out there that indicate those type of waivers are not enforceable. But as I said, the Supreme Court has not definitely decided, and the cases don't deal with waivers that specifically say gross negligence. So the Texas Supreme Court has yet to decide whether a parent may waive liability on behalf of a minor child. Can you explain the cases and complications around that? I'll try. (laughs) (laughs) The, um, there's a number of cases And as you say, the Supreme Court has not decided whether a parent can do that. Um, As always in these cases, one thing that confuses things is just the varying facts from case to case. So I'll touch on a couple of cases just by way of illustration. The leading case in this seems to be uh, the Munoz case, which is mentioned in the article. And in that case, there was a nine-year-old child who went to an amusement park and went with the adult daughter of her parents. Didn't go with her parents. This adult daughter is the one who signed the release. Well, the trial court granted summary judgment based on the fact that the daughter signed the release, not the parents. Uh, They said, daughter signed it, it's not valid. The appeals court said that 
summary judgment wasn't appropriate. Um, I don't want to get off in the weeds on summary mm-hmm. judgment, but the appeals court said summary judgment is not appropriate because there's a fact issue as to whether the parents gave this daughter authority to act on their behalf. So that in itself was enough to send the case back to the trial court. Then the appeals court went on to say that parents can't waive the child's claim for her injuries. Uh, So arguably, this is what lawyers call dictum, okay, Mm -hmm. which means that it's something that's not necessarily essential to the decision in the case, and therefore it might be an indicator of how a court would hold in that situation, but it's not necessarily binding. Mm -hmm. And I think that's arguable. Uh, In any case, though, because of the the case itself, it's it's not binding statewide. Mm -hmm. So that seems to be the leading case that says a parent can't waive liability on behalf of a minor child but uh, certainly doesn't rise to the level of Supreme Court authority. There's another case that is an unpublished case, but it's pretty recent. It's not exactly on point, but the mother went to a trampoline park. This is the Kiros case. And the mother went to the trampoline park with her teenage son, and she signed a release. Well, the son didn't get injured. Mm -hmm. Mom got injured. So she sued on behalf of herself and on behalf of her minor children. And she asserted her personal injury claims, but she also asserted claims on behalf of the kids. Uh, She asserted bystander claims for mental anguish Mm -hmm. and uh, loss of parental consortium. Well, the court said any claims that the children have are derivative of mom's claims. And, And she waived her claims, so the kids' claims are waived also. Now, there are some cases out there that, that conflict with that, but that's what that case says. I should mention this, too. There's a federal case called Poss versus Lifetime Fitness, and that case declared that the waiver was void. The parental waiver was void. Now, that holding is not binding on Texas courts, and the reason why is it was a federal case uh, making a guess as to what the Texas Supreme Court would decide if presented with that question. Mm-hmm. Why do they do that? Well, it's a, without getting into too much detail, it's what's called an eerie case uh, where a federal court will make a guess as to what the state Supreme Court would decide in that situation. And if you had another federal case arising out of Texas going through the federal court system here in the, in the Fifth Circuit, it's likely that that's what the law would be. But if the case went up to the Texas Supreme Court, Supreme Court could definitely decide otherwise. Mm-hmm. One other thing I, I should say about parents and children in this context is that if a parent signs a pre-injury release as an inducement for the child's employment, that's not going to be enforceable. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it could be enforceable against the parent for the right to these wages that the child earns while he's a minor. But let me give you an example. A kid gets a job sacking groceries, and the parent signs a release that says if the grocery store is negligence and the child gets injured, uh, we we waive all his claims. 
mm-hmm. uh, that's not okay. That's not going to be enforced. So when you're presented with a liability waiver, what should you do? What should your first action be? I know we've gone through all these details mm-hmm. about what's enforceable and what's not, but frankly, the, the best action should be to assume you're waiving your rights. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it, and this is not just in the parental context. I know we were just talking about that, but uh, anytime you're presented with a waiver, assume you're signing away your rights to sue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and doesn't necessarily mean you are, but but that's the safe assumption. Uh, and the real question would be, how badly do you want to jump on a trampoline? Yeah. <laughs> uh, because you know, there there are some situations where if you don't have any choice, you have to you know you have to sign and and participate. Uh, then that would not be enforceable. This is not one of those situations. Mm-hmm. You, you do have a choice. Your choice is to not go in and jump on the trampoline. Right. So what's the best way to create your own enforceable liability waiver? The best way is to hire a knowledgeable lawyer to do it. Right. I know that doesn't help much, so I'm going to elaborate. <laughs> if you are the landowner and someone's coming on to your uh, place, I would say that Uh, Of course, hire a knowledgeable attorney to do it. But the main issues you're going to need to do uh, to address are, one, say exactly what's being waived. Mm -hmm. Say the the release should state that it is releasing you, the landowner, or whomever you're trying to get released, from liability for negligence. Mm -hmm. Go ahead and use the word negligence so uh, what's being waived negligence who's what who's negligence your negligence if you're the landowner i would go ahead and put gross negligence in there mm-hmm. that's how we're going to finally find out whether yeah. gross negligence can be waived and then number two is make it conspicuous uh err on the side of caution make it big bold hot pink capital letters and flashing lights Uh, make it a separate paragraph if you need to with a separate heading that says release of liability in all caps or a larger type or a different color you you might want to make it a separate page and then in the main contract reference that that separate page that release as a separate document Uh, you might want to do both Mm -hmm. it's better to have a belt and suspenders in that situation right Great. Well, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks, Haley. Thanks again, Rusty. We posted a link to Our Liability Waivers Enforceable on our podcast webpage and in the YouTube description box. This article will be appearing in the October 2019 issue of Tierra Grande Magazine, but it is available now on our website for free. We also linked to Rusty's other articles. If you're looking for more about legal issues, Check out Covering Your Assets, Business Entities Limit Personal Liability by attorney Carrie Lewis. We linked to that article plus other legal issues articles down below. The Real Estate Center's research library includes a wide variety of economic reports and real estate articles. Topics include Texas housing type trends, blockchain and real estate, manufactured housing, commercial real estate, Texas land markets, and so much more. 
We included a link to the research library on our podcast webpage. That's going to be it for today's Red Zone podcast. If you want more from the Real Estate Center, check us out on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. You can also check out our website. That's www.recenter.tamu.edu for the latest data, research articles, blogs, news, and more. For more podcasts like these, you can subscribe on iTunes or to our YouTube channel. All podcasts are also available for free on our website. Thanks for joining us today in the Real Estate Red Zone, brought to you by the Real Estate Center in College Station, Texas, where we've been helping Texans understand legal issues since 1971. This is Haley Reeder, and I'll see you next time. Bye.